It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Typically, genetic genealogy is used to help people learn more about their family tree, to dig into their ancestral roots. But what can it tell you about a criminal investigation? Thanks to advancements in forensic technology, even the smallest piece of DNA can be used to reveal violent criminals' identities or identify human remains, helping to finally bring answers to cold cases and law enforcement mysteries. On today's bonus episode, I'm joined by expert Cece Moore. Cece is the chief genetic genealogist at Parabon Nanolabs and leads their genetic genealogy services for law enforcement unit. Thanks to her incredible talents, her work has helped identify over 200 violent criminals and has led to both convictions and exonerations alike. Cece, thank you so much for joining me. Can you give us more background into the genetic genealogy field? How is DNA so impactful when it comes to criminal justice? Genetic genealogy is using someone's DNA to learn more about their family history and their genetic heritage. We can use it to identify long dead ancestors. We can use it to identify biological parents of someone of unknown parentage, such as an adoptee or a donor conceived individual. Or we can use it to help law enforcement identify violent criminals or unidentified human remains, meaning Jane or John Doe's. So when you use genetic genealogy for law enforcement, we call it investigative genetic genealogy or forensic genetic genealogy. And so it is a subfield of the larger genetic genealogy field. We are using it to identify only violent criminals. That is what the terms of service allow for the databases who allow us to use them for this purpose. And it's also in line with the DOJ guidelines. Otherwise, we use it to identify unidentified human remains, someone who has died without their identity, commonly known as Jane or John Doe's. And so those are the only two things we're allowed to use it for in the law enforcement uh, arena. We can't use it for petty crimes, for, you know, theft, that type of thing. And so it is limited to only the most serious crimes or to help somebody regain their identity and death and provide answers to their families. And that's really what is the overreaching theme to all genetic genealogy is it's about families, whether it's about learning more about your own family, extending families, uh, reuniting families, biological families, or whether it is providing answers to the families of victims of violent crimes or survivors of violent crime and providing resolution to families who don't know what happened to one of their loved ones. 
And we also believe that people deserve the dignity in death to have their identities. And so all of that is really important to myself and those of us that are doing this work. Okay, so the parameters on what databases and searches that law enforcement is allowed to do according to the DOJ guidelines, can you explain that a bit more? There are over 40 million people that have participated in direct-to-consumer DNA testing. The majority of those people are in the two largest databases, Ancestry DNA and 23andMe. However, those databases bar law enforcement's use. And so there's a big misconception out there that we are using those databases for law enforcement investigations, and that is inaccurate. We are limited to the two smallest genetic genealogy databases, which are called Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. Both of those databases have alerted their participants that law enforcement is using the database and has given them the option to opt in or opt out of that. And so that is important for people to understand because a lot of people will write to me and say, I wanted to help you with your work, so I tested at Ancestry DNA. And they don't realize that if they really want to actively support what we're doing and perhaps be the key to solving one of these cases and bringing resolution to a family, they need to download that raw data file from wherever they've tested and upload it to GEDmatch and or Family Tree DNA and opt into law enforcement matching. And so because we're limited to those two smallest databases, we're only comparing against approximately 2 million people. Um, in GEDmatch for the violent criminal cases, there's a special opt-in and only about a third of the database has done that. So we're only working with maybe five or 600,000 people in that database for violent crimes. And there's about 1.2 million at Family Tree DNA. For the unidentified human remains cases, we can compare against the entire GEDmatch database, which is about 1.8 million. I recently launched a new nonprofit database called DNA Justice. We're just getting started, but the idea is to provide free or very low cost uploads. Right now, it costs $700 for law enforcement to upload each case to GEDmatch and then another $700 to upload it to Family Tree DNA. And both of those databases are owned by for-profit private companies. And so we really felt that there was a need for a nonprofit database um, that is going to take some time to grow, but we hope that that will be a third option and a backup option in the future if something were to happen or change at one of those other databases. At any time, one of those could be purchased, it could be taken private or proprietary, or the owners could change their minds about allowing law enforcement's use. So there's actually three databases now, um, although one is just very, very much at the beginning. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Is there a difference between genetic... Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Genealogy and investigative genealogy. Like, Does it become investigative genealogy when you opt in? Now, in order to perform investigative genetic genealogy on one of these cases, we have to start from scratch with that DNA. So the DNA evidence or DNA from the Jane or John Doe. And that is because we're using a much more advanced type of DNA analysis 
than has been used in law enforcement traditionally. So law enforcement's been using DNA for decades, but they use a DNA profile called an STR, a short tandem repeat, and they test 20 genetic markers. So the law enforcement databases, you might've heard of like CODIS that has about 20 million samples in it. These are typically compelled samples from people that have been charged with and or convicted of violent crimes, felonies. Um, Those are all made up of this older type DNA profile, this STR profile that's 20 genetic markers. We can't do genetic genealogy in those databases because we use a more advanced type of technology and analysis and a different type of genetic marker called an SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism. And instead of just using a handful of genetic markers, we use about 800,000 genetic markers across the genome in order to do our analysis. So that means that for a case to be viable, there has to be remaining DNA that can be reanalyzed from scratch. Unfortunately, some cases no longer have that DNA available. It's been used up or it has been uh, destroyed, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And so that does limit the cases we can work. It has to be a case where there is biological evidence available. With some Jane and John Doe cases, they cremated those remains after a certain amount of time. If they didn't save uh, any blood or tissue or hair, then we wouldn't be able to help identify that individual. So those are our two limitations, basically. Uh, Whether a case has DNA that can be reanalyzed in the format needed for genetic genealogy, and two, what databases we're allowed to use and the number of profiles we can compare against. So that means not every case is going to be viable, even if they have DNA available. Sometimes we just don't have strong enough matches in the limited databases we have access to, to identify that individual. Okay. So if the DNA is viable and you can work with it, then, then what happens? So there's actually three steps. First, that DNA needs to be sent to our lab to undergo the, uh, this advanced analysis. There's two different ways it can be done. One is called a uh, microarray SNP chip, where we look at those about 800,000 genetic markers and only those, or we can do whole genome sequencing where we sequence the entire genome and then we extract out from that data just those markers that we need for comparison. The reason we need that specific set of markers is because we're comparing against people in those databases that have tested at direct-to-consumer DNA testing companies. So if you spit in a tube, mail it in to say Ancestry or 23andMe, they are testing your DNA on one of those microarray SNP chips, and they have a specific set of genetic markers they look at. So we want to get very similar uh, genetic markers in our profile, and so there's a lot of overlap between those two, and that is optimal. The more overlap you have, the better you can do with those comparisons. And so once our lab has generated that from whichever process we use, then our bioinformatics scientists will often need to go in and repair that data because a lot of times this data is very, or this DNA is very degraded. It might be from an old case. Um, It depends how it was stored. 
So they might have to repair that degradation. It might have bacterial contamination, also depending on where it was, if it was a Jane or John Doe that was out in the elements for a long time, then typically we see a lot of bacterial contamination and that bacteria will insert its genome into the human genome. So that has to be removed. Also in sexual assaults, we're often seeing mixed DNA profiles. So our bioinformaticists, scientists have to uh, subtract out the victim's DNA so we can focus on the perpetrator's DNA. Once that's done, they format the raw data file for upload to GEDmatch and or Family Tree DNA, and it's compared against everyone in those databases that has allowed their profile to be compared against for law enforcement cases, and then we get a list of matches. That's where my job really starts. I can't do anything until that upload happens because the genetic genealogy is based on that list of matches. What is the list of matches? What does that look like when it comes in? What does that mean? Well, it's people who share significant amounts of DNA with that unknown individual, whether it's a suspect or John Doe, that person we're trying to identify, that DNA contributor. We're trying to reverse engineer that individual's identity based on who he's sharing DNA with, he or she is sharing DNA with in the databases. So when I say significant amounts of DNA, that could be less than 1%. When you're working with law enforcement databases and STR profiles, you have to have a first degree relative or an exact match. So they are looking for that person to be in the database. In states that allow familial searching, they might extend that out to looking for someone's sibling or parent child, but that's as far as it goes. In genetic genealogy, we're able to detect second, third, fourth, fifth cousins and beyond And that is often very small amounts of DNA. If you share about 1% of your DNA, you're most likely third cousins, which means you would share one set of your great, great grandparents. So another misconception is that we are able to help solve these cases with only one match. And it is typically more like a dozen matches, two dozen, three dozen matches, because we're looking at distant relatives And we have to piece together this unknown individual's family tree, ancestor by ancestor, match by match. And so we are hoping to connect to someone's mother's side and their father's side, maybe three, four of their grandparents' lines, connecting to multiple ancestors. We all have unique family trees, except for our full siblings. And so the more we can piece together of that person's family tree, the more we're able to narrow down the likely DNA contributors. And so that's one of the upsides of having a lot of data. If we were able to compare against all 40 million people that have taken these tests, then we could narrow almost all of these cases down to just one immediate family quite efficiently and quickly. And that's the goal. But when you only have 2 million people approximately to compare against, it's much more difficult to have enough data to fill in that whole family tree and and point to just one immediate family, one individual or a set of siblings. That's always the goal. We are able to accomplish that much of the time. But then there are also a number of cases where we just don't have enough data to narrow it down. And that is where any time a new person uploads to one or two of these databases and opts into law enforcement matching, it can completely change 
the status of a case. You know, even though we're using multiple matches to piece these family trees back together, one new upload can point us in the right direction finally. It can finally give us that final piece that we need to be able to narrow it down and provide that lead to law enforcement. But ultimately, the goal is to provide a lead to law enforcement. Nobody should be arrested based on genetic genealogy. It is simply a tip. It happens to be a highly scientific tip, but law enforcement has to treat it the same way they would if someone called in a lead or a tip to a Crime Stoppers line. Um, it is not something that is to be used in court as evidence against anyone. It's not to be used for the basis of an arrest or a warrant to compel DNA. It is instead meant to point them in the right direction. And then they have to do their full investigation. They would on any other lead. They have to do their due diligence and they need to confirm or refute that theory or hypothesis that we've developed through investigative genetic genealogy. And most importantly, they need to collect DNA directly from that individual in order to compare it against their crime scene DNA. We'll be right back with more of this story. Part of what is so stunning about how prolific and accomplished your work has been is that it has been such despite, as you've described with the specificity, essentially the challenges against it, the regulations, the laws, the the dwindling supply of genetic profiles, et cetera. So given that, can you describe for us a case study, one of the more um, infamous case studies that you've uh, cracked open yourself there as part of Parabon? Can you share how exactly you implemented, you know, the family tree for lack of a scientific term so that we can understand exactly how that worked once you got into the profiles. Sure. Now, every single case is different. And because I've worked on so many hundreds, it's very difficult to give an average case, right? Because the data is different on all of them. The circumstances are different. Population groups are different. And so there is one that I've talked about a lot because it's the most straightforward case I've talked about. And that is the very first one I helped law enforcement solve, which was the double homicide in Snohomish County, Washington. And it was Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenborg, young couple from Canada that were murdered. And it was a cold case for 30 years. They tried everything, which is typical in cases that genetic genealogy is used in. They have already exhausted every other avenue of investigation by that point. They have no match in CODIS and the law enforcement databases, and they just haven't been able to identify this individual. And so they turned to investigative genetic genealogy back in late April, exactly five years ago, that the Golden State Killer suspect arrest was announced. And that was really what broke open this idea of using genetic genealogy for law enforcement. And Detective Jim Scharf up in Snohomish County had been wanting to try genetic genealogy on this, on the um, Jay and Tanya's case for a long time. But once the Golden State Killer case was announced and people realized that genetic genealogy could be used for this purpose and were able to 
make an informed choice whether it was something they wanted their DNA used for. That allowed me to move forward. And very quickly, I moved forward and I started helping Detective Scharf and his team with Jay and Tanya's case. Just it'll be five years and a couple of days here. And Parabon and I officially joined forces May 1st and launched our genetic genealogy service to law enforcement. So backtracking. Anyway, so um, almost exactly five years ago, I waited for that upload to GEDmatch of the uh, crime scene DNA from Jay and Tanya's case. And once I got those matches at GEDmatch, I was just thrilled because at the top of that list, we had two matches that were about second cousin level matches. And you don't necessarily expect that with such a small database. At that time, GEDmatch was a little less than 1 million people. And that was great luck. It turned out that each of those matches represented a different side of the perpetrator's family tree. One was on his mom's side and one was on his dad's side. And so it only took me about two hours to identify this individual after 30 plus years of investigation. And that is the best case scenario when you can narrow it down to just one person and you have enough data to do that very quickly. But that's not normal. It took almost five years for that to happen again. The Rita Curran case in Burlington, Vermont, that we just announced a couple of months ago, was much more recent. And that was very much the same situation. I had a first cousin once removed on mom's side and a first cousin once removed on dad's side. I was able to quickly find how those two families converged into a marriage where only one son was born. So again, it was only one male that could be carrying that correct mix of DNA. Most of the time, though, I'm working with what I call genetic networks and more distant matches. And so that when I use that process, I'm looking for people who share DNA with my subject, but also with each other. Because if people share this DNA with each other, the type of DNA we're measuring, which is autosomal DNA, and if they share enough of it that they're showing up as matches to each other, it means they have a common ancestor in their family tree. It's the only reason two people would have these long stretches of identical DNA, these blocks of DNA that we're working with. The more DNA they share, the closer that common ancestor is in time. The smaller amounts of DNA indicate a very distant common ancestor. And so what I spend a lot of my time doing is called descendancy research. Once I identify at least one set of common ancestors, I now have to flip that tree upside down. Instead of building back in time, finding long dead ancestors, I now have to come forward in time and try to find a living or recently living individual who left their DNA either behind at a crime scene or who is a Jane or John Doe. And so I have to identify the descendants of those common ancestors. The other example is when you just don't have enough data. You don't have all those match clusters. You don't have enough data to build the genetic networks. And those can take much, much longer. Those might take months. They might even take years. At a John Doe, I've been trying to identify since 2019, an African-American man. Um, I have revisited over and over. And a couple weeks ago, a new person uploaded who ended up being a second cousin once removed to this gentleman. Mm. And I was finally able to pull all those pieces together. And that's why people 
actively supporting us by uploading their data and opting into law enforcement matching can make just so much difference. You know, I have done everything I could to identify this man as have the, has the agency over the years. And I've revisited it many times. I had, you know, both sides of his family tree. I knew he should be Italian on one side, African-American on the other, but I could not find how they connected. And this match helped me, this new match helped me to focus in on a specific branch. And then we also have the 1950 census that came out a year ago that has provided some new information that also really helped. And I was finally able to identify him and, and provide his likely identity to the detectives. Um, and so, you know, some cases it might take me two hours to develop a theory hypothesis and others it might take me three years to do so. And that's really dependent on the data. What do I have to compare against? What do I have on that match list? Who has uploaded their DNA to one of these two databases and allowed us to compare against it? I just can't imagine that feeling of fulfillment and purpose that you must have in those moments, Cece, especially after that dogged determination that you have to have and that you apply for something like that, that cold case, the John Doe that you finally were able to identify mm -hmm. because of that change, because someone uploaded their profile. And just to underscore for listeners too, going back to the Jay Cook, Tanya Van Kylenborg, you know, that they, they were killed in 1987. And so again, just to reiterate here, 31 years later, and then two hours of your incredible skill, and then we have that match. And then as you point out, you know, that becomes a tip. The law enforcement then realized the mother of the killer uh, lived right by where the bodies were found. And that's where he had been living. You know, they put the pieces together. They put the evidence together. But um, it also really underscores, again, I mentioned dogged determination and um, the sheriff there in Snohomish County. Again, he didn't give up. He inherited the case and he didn't give up. He pursued you and, and working with you. And then because of that, there was closure and there was a conviction. And all the stars had to be aligned for that case to be successful. But I appreciate so much your stories because despite that seemingly infinite possibility, you would get a match again because of the challenges and the, the low database. Yeah. Here it's working. I mean, it is absolutely working and it's bringing closure to your point it's all about families and it's really uh seemingly miraculous or you call it science or whatever you call it but um it's really incredible to listen to and to witness i mean genetic genealogy is really science and art it's both and i think that is why it came from citizen scientists right this didn't mm -hmm. come from forensic science or academia or traditional science this came from a group of early adopters of direct-to-consumer DNA testing who were interested in trying to use their own DNA and that of your, their families to learn more about their family history. And we built this. We built this from scratch. And we built this incredibly powerful tool for human identification that has lots of different applications. But we did it under the radar because we were just hobbyists. We were this niche group. No one was really paying attention to us. And by the time people really became aware of what we were doing, Pandora was out of the box. There was no putting it back. And that is why it's taken so long for there to be any sort of oversight 
regulation laws about this. You know, when I was first trying to tell people about what we were doing and what we were building and what we were accomplishing, people just looked at me like I was crazy. Like (laughs) they just couldn't even fathom it. But by the time law enforcement and the public really became aware of the power of investigative genetic genealogy, we already had tens of millions of people that had tested their own DNA in these large databases. And so there was no dialing it back. There was no putting you know, Pandora back in that box. And so now states and the federal government are finally trying to get their arms around this and some law, some state laws are being passed now and some regulations and restrictions are being put in place, which I think is a good thing. But the reason it's taken so long is this really took everyone by surprise. When the Golden State Killer suspect was identified and arrested by the FBI investigative genetic genealogy team, the Sacramento DA's office and Barbara Ray Venter, almost nobody really knew about genetic genealogy outside of our little you know, early adopter group, our citizen scientist group that were obsessed with this and the potential of this. And then suddenly everybody found out about it, including law enforcement. And so although Detective Jim Scharf already was aware of it and had been wanting to do this for a long time prior to that, the vast majority of detectives across the country and uh, coroners, medical examiners learned about this exactly five years ago today. April 25th, 2018, when that announcement was made about, you know, this huge high profile case, the Golden State Killer. And that's what blew the barn doors off. And it's taken now five years for people to really understand how powerful this is and to start getting their arms around it and start really talking about, you know, the ethical considerations, developing best practices. You still can't get a degree in this. You can't just, there's no turnkey way to become a professional genetic genealogist. I was actually the first professional genetic genealogist, quote unquote, um, and started making my full-time living at this in 2012. And here we are a decade later, you still can't get your degree in it. You know, you still have to blaze your own trail. There's no certification or licensing or accreditation. Um, And that is something that now is starting to be tackled finally after all this time. And I think that's you know a, a positive. I think that's a good thing. There's a lot of academic studies going on. I'm involved in a long-term study, uh, gauging the public's feeling about genetic genealogy, any concerns they have, any privacy concerns or issues. And what we're finding is that the public is largely supportive of this public uh, by a large majority, appears to be very much in favor of this. That's not to say they don't think there should be some regulations or restrictions around it, but they think it's a good thing. And I think we've been able to prove that we can absolutely improve public safety and the efficiency of these types of law enforcement investigations. We can also help to stop criminals in their tracks, save lives, keep serial killers and serial rapists from really even being a thing, right? Because if we can identify them after the first violent crime, after the first time they victimize someone, then we can keep them from becoming serial offenders. We also can save a lot of public resources. If investigations don't have to go on for 30 years, we can identify someone after a few weeks or months. That saves a tremendous amount of taxpayer money, of law enforcement resources, 
And I think that the majority of the public is becoming aware of this and is supportive of it. And I just ask that if you support this and you think it's a good thing, that you also should actively support us. It's one thing, it's great to have support from the public, but if you actively support us, we can be even more successful, even more efficient. I'm hoping that also means that we can greatly reduce the number of wrongful convictions. Because when you see, when you look at the history of wrongful convictions, it's usually that law enforcement focused in on the wrong person early on in the investigation. And we can tell them right off the bat who isn't a suspect. If we get involved early, we can say, hey, that person's not it. That person's not it. They, their family tree does not match what we're seeing with in these matches families trees. And so we can really narrow it down to a very small population group, even, even from the beginning. Even if we can't tell them exactly who it is, we can tell them who it isn't. And so I think that we can really uh, make a lot of positive change in law enforcement investigations and public safety. To your point about the public support, I think structurally in the the form of these databases and also legislatively, it it doesn't align with the overwhelming public support for all of the reasons that you just articulated. Those on both sides of the aisle, no matter where you fall in the criminal justice realm, there are reasons to support this because at the end of the day, it's ruling out who is not responsible and it's zeroing in on exactly who is. And what I mean by that is, you know, you keep saying in the two databases that law enforcement can access to opt in. The point there is that the default setting is that your DNA profiles is not shared with law enforcement. So anyone listening to your point to be an active supporter, upload your DNA and then opt in so that that pool can widen and broaden. And in the interim, if that happens, then we can also keep pushing for legislative action and public awareness, academia to get on board, all of the stuff that you just talked about so that that can create a landscape that is supportive for this incredible field that you are spearheading. Cece Moore, it's been such an honor to learn from you today. You are an incredible individual and an incredible educator, and you have changed countless lives for the better and for closure here, countless families. So thank you for your work and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.